0: Hi, my name is Luke Phillips, and I am the senior correspondent at Glimpse from the Globe, USC's student-run international affairs publication. Uh, And uh, we are joined today for this uh, first installment of the podcast interview series by the legendary journalist Mr. Robert D. Kaplan. Uh, Robert Kaplan has written many, many great books on geopolitics and history and travel, and uh, his recent book is coming up in 2016, Earning the Rockies. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, welcome. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Mr. Kaplan, in preparation for this interview, I was rereading a few of your chapters in *The Revenge of Geography* and *An Empire Wilderness*, and I get the impression that your uh, uh, your main argument about the uh, uh, American geopolitics is that as we uh, move forward into the twenty first century. America is still defined by her geography, but the social conditions that play out on that geography are increasingly played out in an international and multicultural context. Uh, Yes, that's true.
1: Um, My belief, and this is elaborated on in depth in my new book, which is coming out in 2017, Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. Uh, my new belief is that America is being swept up into a globalized world like it or not and a, a, a large section of the American population can compete with that world and will prosper but a large section is still stuck in space it cannot compete it's stuck in the nation state and and and, and the geography of the United States is remember we have the largest Asia but at the same time our river systems which empty into the Mississippi um, and meet the great sea lines of communication bring bring all of our great cities into contact with the world even without jet airplanes simply
0: So, you uh, would argue that the trends that many people from Ross Douthat to Joel Kotkin to Michael Lind have been seeing, with the increasing rise of a cosmopolitan upper class that shares more in common with its international counterparts uh, than with its fellow countrymen, is, uh, is on the one side, while on the other side, you have the more traditional middle class, working class, nationhood oriented people. Uh, in the rest of the suburban rings and the interior of the United States. Yes, in fact, I've been writing about that since the
1: mid-1990s. If you look at my book, An Empire Wilderness, uh, A Journey Across America, I took in the mid-1990s. If you look at several Atlantic essays I did in the 1990s, um, I, I, I was writing very directly about this what I call globalized, whiskey-sipping, upper-middle class that's merging into the global elite, and a lower-middle and lower-class, which is slipping behind, staying anchored in the nation-state, so that the middle class itself is, is weakening, and it's, and it's dividing up into an upper-middle and a lower-middle.
0: Now, there are some who would argue that it is important for the maintenance of American nationhood that we strengthen that, uh, that middle class and lower class, uh, as well as strengthening the institutions of the American state and the American cultural nation uh, in direct opposition to the, uh, the kind of globally minded coastal elites who would uh, be favoring more of a free trade kind of open borders kind of world. Uh, now, I know your, uh, your writing is mostly descriptive rather than prescriptive, but uh, nonetheless, it still lends to the notion that there may be some great cultural conflict on the horizon if those divides continue to uh, continue to widen. What are your opinions on the future of that kind of conflict within the American system between those two broad cultures that both can lay equal claim to being the real Americans, quote-unquote. Well, yes. We're, um, it's playing
1: out in politics. I mean, a large part of the Trump voters are in that lower middle, stuck in space, unable to compete in the globalized world. Fewer manufacturing jobs in the U.S. since China joined the free trade, you know, the world free trading uh, system. Um, And a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters are, of course, in that upper-middle, globalized elite that have done very, very well by globalization. Um, And you see the same thing in Great Britain. A lot of the people who supported Brexit were from the Midlands, from the middle part of the country, who, Felt that their jobs or their or the rate of their wages was being threatened by immigration from other EU countries poles Romanians and others and an upper middle elite at Oxford Cambridge the city of London who have benefited enormously from Britain being in the EU and, and you know and 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 therefore supported it you cannot have social peace unless you help out the people who have been left behind so uh, a Darwinian system of pure free trade, pure free market, without a social safety net, will lead to social
0: unrest. It seems to me that a p- prospective solution could be something in the line, along the lines of what uh, what the nineteenth century economist Henry Carey, I believe, called uh, the harmony of interests, or what uh, the great nineteenth uh, century Prime Minister of England, Benjamin Disraeli, <clears throat> called. Uh, one-nation conservatism, whereby the interests of different social classes who, uh, who were being affected by economic developments in different ways, even back then, uh, whereby the, the interests of different social classes could be united into a broader nationhood-oriented political program that would bring up the bottom while protecting the top at the same time.
1: Yeah, uh, look, I'm not an economist. Uh, What what I am is a journalist, and I travel, and I describe things. And if you journey across the United States slowly, as I've done uh, over the past year for this new book that's coming out, what you see is a lot of towns of about 20,000 or so that used to be thriving uh, that are now dead. Uh, the stores are empty. The streets are empty. You have places in Kansas, in Indiana, uh, where you have a lot of low-paying jobs for Mexican immigrants, and life has been shattered for people who've been living there many generations. And this is the side of the country that the elites do not see. Um, now, uh, it's true that a number of the solutions proposed by Mr. Trump would probably make things worse. Uh, I'm not arguing in support of him. I'm just saying that the social conditions away from the, from, from the great cosmopolitan cities and coastlines are, are, are significantly to blame for the upheaval we've seen
0: in this election cycle. I think you can even see it in other places than just the interior. I mean, I live in south-central Los Angeles, and the conditions around here are, uh, are similar to uh, to those as, uh, I've read. So, but, uh, but I want to shift the conversation towards another aspect of your thought. Uh, so in the last chapter of The Revenge of Geography, you argued that uh, the United States would become something like a north-south-oriented Mexico-to-Canada kind of... Uh, regional uniter of uh, of Latino and Anglo cultures uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, what implications would that kind of multinational, uh, if not union, then integration certainly, what kind of implications would that have on the American working class and middle class which is predominantly white? Uh, is not with Canada. Canada is like Chile laid on its
1: side. Almost all Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Canada is a middle-class country. Uh, Canadian entry into the U.S. doesn't in any way affect the social peace in the United States. Canada is in demographic terms a, a small extension of the United States. Matter. Mexico is a country with a third, a half of the population of the United States, growing faster than the United States demographically. Although it's been dynamic economically, it's still significantly poorer than the United States, with a younger average population, Which and because it's contiguous to the United States, Mexican immigration has a much greater effect on the United States than other for than immigration from other parts of the world, because immigrants do not have to cross a large sea to get to the United States; they just cross a land border. So that um, our future is increasingly intertwined with Mexico, whether we like it or not. But while the elites experience the good side of Mexican. Immigration and, uh, and 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 conjoining with the United States, the people in the lower middle classes in other parts of the country experience the difficult parts of it.
0: Do you think that uh, that there will, that uh, that the pro- uh, program for uh, for uh, for alleviating that difficulty will include greater international integration? Or do you think uh, we'll see more of a rise of kind of anti-immigrant populism in uh, in response to that integration? Um, remember that the United States has been an immigrant uh,
1: has been friendly to immigrants not all of its history, but during parts of its history. There have been decades when very few immigrants were were allowed entry. There have been decades when many immigrants were allowed entry. Um, it's always been regulated uh, uh, over. The unlimited immigration into the United States. But what I do see is despite the populist upheaval, the world is increasingly converging and integrated, and crises are converging with each other, so that we're facing like
0: one large conflict system in a way that we haven't in the past. It'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see. Well, I know uh, the late Robert Pastor uh, wrote some stuff on what he called the North American idea. So I'm sure there's uh, there's uh, there's uh, reasoning for uh, for looking more into that. Um, So my final uh, my final question kind of question basket that I had for you, Mr. Kaplan, uh, revolves around the question of American identity and American geography uh... somewhat in line with what uh... what frederick jackson turner the great historian of the progressives and the west uh... uh... discussed when he was uh... talking about the uh... the relevance of the frontier to american democracy now uh... in your um, in an empire wilderness i recall you discussed how uh... as these social changes uh... take place and as the frontier truly closes in ways that frederick jackson turner never would have known um, America becomes more of a cosmopolitan entity uh, that integrates itself with the rest of the globe, uh, which may be a positive development. But yet, at the expense of what you called the Homeric age of uh, of uh, American identity and the Homeric age of great exploits that defined what America was. And uh, you suggested that there would be a kind of disconnect between the traditional military patriotism with the new global cosmopolitanism. My question is, do you think it is possible to maintain a semblance of what we would recognize as American nationhood and American identity amidst this increasingly globalized world and amidst this increasingly multicultural North American continent? Um, Well, we're going to have to, uh, because without a
1: sense of American identity, without a sense of pride in American history, uh, without a sense of pride in settling in the temperate zone of the continent, with all of its cruelties. Nevertheless, if we have no pride in that, it will
0: be very hard for us to be active and to do good in the world. And so it's important to maintain some of those institutions... Uh, regardless of the challenges that it will that there will be to maintain those institutions, absolutely. Uh, I guess the uh, the kind of follow up is uh, how do you see um, the actual geography uh, of the United States reflecting that? I know you, the title of your book is "Earning the Rockies." And uh, I wanted to kind of uh, kind of ask you what the what the what the logic behind that was and what the well, theme of um, that the is. Well, the logic will be explained in the first few pages of the book.
1: Mainly, it's how settling the thinly soiled Great Plains and Rocky Mountains changed the character of the American people. Because up through settling the Midwest, they just Anglo Saxons encountered a landscape very similar to Great. Written. it was only with the, when they when they when they entered water starved areas with very little rainwater did the anglo-saxon race experience a true desert and it was that encounter that changed the american character and created it as we know now and that encounter involved not just individualism but communalism it required restraint caution, common sense, um, uh, because Utah, for instance, is only 3% arable, whereas Iowa is almost 100% arable. So settling Utah involved constraints and communalism uh, and, 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 and and a break on individualism. So I think, as I'll explain in the book, the settling of the American West provides a good guide to our foreign policy and how we should proceed with it
0: going forward. That's a fascinating idea, and I look forward to reading your book and uh, seeing the fleshed-out uh, arguments over how it, how it works. And, you know, in the increasingly complex world of foreign policy uh, in the 21st century, I think it's going to be even more important than ever before to do that. Uh, so, uh, so to just wrap up this interview... Um, because we're running, uh, we're running towards the end of our time here. Uh, do you have any prescriptions or uh, forecasts or general ideas and advice for people who are going to be looking into uh, the confluence of American geography and American foreign policy and American politics and culture uh, moving yeah, forward? You have to do a
1: lot of reading uh, of authors who have now been forgotten, but who are very important, uh, such as Walter Prescott Webb, Bernard, DeVoto, Wallace, Stegner, um, and others. And I, of course, discuss all those books in my new
0: book. Well, excellent. I look forward to purchasing your book, and I will most likely do a review of it for Glimpse from the Globe. So, uh, Well, Mr. Kaplan, thank you very, very much for joining me today. I very much appreciate you being able to and being willing to join us for this first of our podcast interview series. Uh, and uh we will uh, we will definitely send it your way once it 's published so thank you very much, and uh, we appreciate it a lot you're very welcome.